Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, you want to open up to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10 today in that chapter, Romans 13. And I'm going to go ahead and say that what I'm going to be sharing today is not going to be any new information to you. Um, As a matter of fact, as I studied this passage for this week, I thought to myself, we could just read this passage and then walk out the door. But then I thought to myself, how many times have we done that? We're going to read a passage today that's not new. And we walk out the doors, and maybe you're like me, oftentimes I'll walk out the door of a sermon and say, man, that was a good sermon, Pastor, and then I don't do it. Just like the book of James says, I look at the Word and then walk away like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like. I'm I'm tempted to do that. You're tempted to do that. So what I'm asking you to do today is let's look at this passage today, and let's let the Word of God do its deep surgery in our hearts. That's my hope. It's doing deep surgery in my heart, and that's not a boast. That is me. I'm broken. I need help. And he has, again, like I like to say, he's punched me in the face this week. Now it's my turn to turn the Bible towards you. And we're hoping that God punches us in the face this week and changes us radically. So let's look at our passage today, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, as we turn our attention to what your word has for us, I pray that you would help us to focus on it. Please, Lord, don't let us focus on anything other than what you want to teach us today. Father, I pray that if I say anything today that's my opinion, let it be forever forgotten. I pray even that no one here will remember that I ever preached this sermon to them, but that they will remember the truth of the sermon. Lord, may I be a footnote. May I be relegated to a statement that says, I heard this somewhere. Because I want you, Lord, to be what's remembered today. I want what you want to teach us to be what's remembered today. And I pray that you would do that in the lives of all of us today. May it be for your glory and your glory alone. In the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Early in my Christian life, and you got, many of you know my story, I was a Christian school kid, didn't get saved until I was at a Bible college uh, at the age of around 21. And early in that life, I was given books. Um, I'm a reader. I believe that uh, Dr. Chapman says there's only five love languages. I think there's six. Uh, the sixth one being books. All right? Uh, matter of fact, when my wife and I, when she says, let's go to Edward McKay, I'm already in the car, just waiting. I'm like that puppy on a ride. Let's go. Okay? maybe even having my head out the window, really excited about this. I love this, okay? I love that. Now, you might think, well, Rick, have you read most of them? I would love to say I've read the majority of the books I bought. But a lot of my books, maybe like you, they they go on the shelf going, "Mm, someday, when Jesus comes, I'll sit down with the author and say, can you sum it up? (laughs) But this is a book I want to share with you today. Early in my Christian life, I was introduced to the works of a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Anyone heard of Francis Schaeffer? My wife and I have decided we, when we grow up, we want to be Francis and Edith Schaeffer. 
We want to get a cottage in France, a farm, and have people come where we disciple them while they're working on the farm. I just think that's super cool. I love that. We love that kind of interaction. Francis Schaeffer and Edith introduced me to that relationship discipleship. Not giving you a book and say, if you fill out all 15 points, you love Jesus and you're now a disciple. That's not discipleship, according to Francis Schaeffer. It's walking every day the highs and lows. And this small book was one of the first ones I got turned on to. It's called The Mark of the Christian, 63 pages. All right? Some of you can read this in the afternoon. If you're like my friend Matthew, you can read it and actually save time. He's so fast at reading books. He'll actually finish before he starts it. It's a great book. If you don't have this book and you'd like this book, if you come see me after service, fight your way up here, claw for it, I'll give you that copy. Because I think it's worth your read. Because in this book, Francis Schaeffer says, in the 60 pages, he states quickly that love is the singular identifying mark of a Christian. Not what they look like, not what they dress like, not how they sing or what they sing, not version of the Bible, none of that. He says that love is the singular identifying mark of a Christian. His argument is from what Jesus taught us in John chapter 13, where he said that all the world would know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But Schaefer goes a little further, and I like it. He goes a little further than that emotional feeling. And sometimes when we, we do love and we talk about love, it's love and, and we talk about the love languages. Like we might say, my love language is gifts, my love language is quality time, my love language is words of affirmation. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, but Schaefer goes further. Here's what Schaefer says in one of his quotes. He actually makes a point to emphasize that often we as Christians operate out of an exclusive love meaning that we're willing and ready to love fellow believers while ignoring our call to love all people. Here's what his quote says. Schaefer says, all men are our neighbors, and we are to love them as ourselves. We are to do this on the basis of creation, even if they are not redeemed. For all men have value because they are made in the image of God. Therefore, they are to be loved even at great cost. Now, I've read this book a lot. I've got the audio. I'm that nerd. When I'm out mowing the yard, I'll pop it in and listen to it. But this week when I was studying for this sermon, these two lines stuck out to me, the ones that I underlined, even if they're not redeemed and they are loved at even a great cost. Because I believe encapsulated in these two lines is the actual point of Paul's passage today that we're looking at to love others as ourselves. And it's interesting that Paul begins this passage by that word. He uses the word owe. He uses the word owe. We just finished last week talking about the government and our responses to the government. Pay taxes to whom taxes is owed. Revenue, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That word owed was an awful, mentioned an awful lot. And that word owed is a really great word. It means more broadly, whatever's obligated. You're obligated to do this. And Paul says here that we're supposed to, we're obligated to love each other. He ends this discussion about submission, goes right to our idea that we're supposed to love one another. Paul is saying that the one thing that we as Christians are absolutely obligated to do is love. Now, he's talked earlier in, sorry, in Romans chapter 12 about how we're supposed to love each other in the church. And we, we got that. 
But Paul is adding to that obligation today with this love going beyond the walls of our church to all men. Look at the passage. In, if you take a look, in, chapter, in, in the book of Luke, Jesus talks about this. In Luke, Jesus is um, talking in verse, chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, to a man who comes to him to test him. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what, it is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. You've got it. Do that. And then he, the, the scribe again, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And if you know that context, if you know what's happening in that passage, when he's pressed with that final question, who is my neighbor? Jesus goes into the story about a Samaritan who finds a Jewish man who's been beaten and left, robbed and left for dead. And he shows love and compassion to him. And right there in that passage, Jesus taught us that his, our neighbor is anyone we find in need. Right there. He says, anyone you find in need is your neighbor. And I would like to suggest to you today, that's what Paul's message is today. Paul is extending that command that he gave these Christians in Rome to love each other to include loving all people. He uses it by that word neighbor. And I do find it curious that Paul has to tell these, um, this audience to love unbelievers. I find that curious a bit. And I, I kind of find it weird that I have to say this today. We just finished talking about, well, let me just kind of think this through with you. We just heard about what God's doing in Togo, how God is working in people's hearts. And many of you are giving to the Wadomis. We as a church give to them, and we're part of that ministry. That's why they're saying thank you. And we just heard about what God's doing in Clemens, North Carolina, at Marywood Christian Camp. And we have a part of that too. We give, we serve. Any of you, whenever Marywood has a need, you're like, I'm there. Sometimes you say, I can help, and Terry has to go, mm, not you. But you're willing, you're willing to help. But can if I be frank for a moment, we just about two weeks ago had a man come and share with us that one of the things we notice about our church is we're not reaching our community. It's like we're lobbing cannon fire somewhere else while there's people right here we're missing. And I wonder why that is. And I don't think I'm teaching this passage to people who don't care about the community. I don't think that. If I thought that, you and I would have had a conversation. If you were standing there like a curmudgeon, well, I don't like people, well, you're going to be lonely in heaven. We would have had a conversation. I don't think I'm speaking to, you, to people like that. I think I'm speaking to people who don't know how to love our community. You know? I don't know why. Maybe we've just heard it. Maybe we're just not, com maybe we're confused about the new culture. What do we do? Maybe our response or the culture's response to us scares us. I don't know. But I believe what Paul has to say for us today is very important for us at Salem Baptist Church in this day and age. Now, I find it really curious he has to tell him this. But if you remember, what will really help us is if we understand the history of when Paul wrote this. And we've talked about it a little bit. But Paul penned Romans in 57 AD, about seven years from a persecution that's about to take place in Rome. You may know the story. But let me kind of unpack it a little bit to you. 
One of the things we know about Rome in 64 AD when this, uh, when, when this persecution began is that a fire broke out in Rome. And there's legends about how the fire broke out. Some people think Nero started it and played the fiddle when he did it and, and all that. Here's what we know. Nero wanted to build an Italian villa, country villa, in the city of Rome. He wanted his palace to look like the Italian villas. And he had a perfect place to do it and put it. And he petitioned to the city and told them, I'm going to build my villa there. The problem with that is that it was already densely populated with tenements or apartment buildings. Lots of people lived in that area. So rather than hear the word no, what we find is, strangely enough, that area caught on fire. Now, I'm, I'm into conspiracy, and I like true crime. I'm pretty sure there's something suspicious about this one. And the city, that part of the city burned, and all those people, some lost their lives, and all of them lost their house. And we do know that after he built his villa there. Coincidences, huh? But what we do find out is people suspected Nero right away. And when they suspected Nero, Nero knew it. So what he did was he decided instead of owning it or going, I, have, I don't know what you do. I don't know what happened. He put the blame on another despised group of the Roman Empire, the Christians. Now you might go, why were they despised? Real simple enough. Rome worshiped other gods. And they believed if they didn't worship those gods, those gods, if they didn't get honored, would send calamity onto the, onto the city and onto the nation. So that if any time there was a tragedy, if there was a natural catastrophe, even this fire, it was sent by the gods because they weren't being honored by the people. And who in the population of Rome would refuse to honor the Roman gods? The Christians. So the people blamed the Christians for their lack of honoring the gods, and that's caused the gods set the fire. That's how it happened. And we see it happen. These Christians were a danger to the Romans, to their well-being, because they refused to worship these gods. They had the idea that if there was success and prosperity, the gods were happy. But if there was calamity, the gods were unhappy and needed to be appeased. So we have to do this by taking out the Christians. Now, let me go nerd them for a second and show you a historical quote from a man by the name of Tacitus. He says this in his work, Annals. He says, accordingly, first, those, those Christians were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted. So they got these Christians they arrested to tell us who else are Christians. They started flipping on each other. But look at this last line. This is powerful. This is something. Not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race. Don't miss this. These early Christians were hunted down and put to death because of the fire, not because of the fire, but because they were seen as haters of humanity. Now, and sad to say, our, our culture is not far from that at the time. Today, loving others is championed and magnified above all else, all except the love that Christ offers. Today, to speak in any form of objective, of objective truth is to be seen as hateful, narrow-minded, and intolerant, and hating humanity. Today, to proclaim that there is one God who loves the whole world by sending his son is to, to die for their sins is to be seen as hateful because it labels people as sinners. Now, I want to stop there. Because if I go too far with this, some of you guys are going to get really excited. 
And that's not the point of this passage. Paul is not saying here to let's have a culture war. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that. He's not rallying the church to fight for the Christian cause. No one in the back is singing onward Christian soldiers while he's writing this passage. Because that's what comes natural and ordinary to us when we feel that we're being attacked and targeted. It's natural and ordinary to respond, but God calls us to be unordinary. It's completely unordinary to seek the good of those who are against us or to love those who we feel, for whatever reason, don't deserve it. Here's how I found this out. Uh, I teach apologetics uh, in our Christian school, and a number of years we've taught a comparative religions section of apologetics. And some of you in here may have had this section where one day I made a mistake. I was like, guys, tell me a world religion you want to study that we haven't talked about yet. Kid raised his hand. I'm like, what is it? He goes, Satanism. Of course, of course. I've already covered Wicca. Let's go ahead and full on go Satanism. So I started researching Satanism. Like, are you serious? Yeah. And they have a Satanic scripture called the Satanic Bible written in the 60s by a man by the name of Anton LaVey. So you know what I did? I got a copy. You're like, are you serious? Yeah, Edward McKay again, they sell everything. And let me tell you, you haven't lived until you really freaked out the lady checking out the books at Edward McKay when you put that and then look at her. And I look like this. I thought about going like this. So I've got this book, and I remember reading through it to get people ready for it. And the satanic people, by the way, Satanism is basically humanism. They, they, they use the words for Satan to talk about the human spirit. But as I was reading this, there are nine satanic statements. Now you're thinking, is this Salem? Yeah, we're talking about this real quick. I don't want to get in depth on it, but there's one of the satanic statements, their commandments, that sticks out. Here it is. It's Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. Did you hear that? He's saying, don't waste your love on people who aren't worth it. You know what stung me when I read that? I'm a better Satanist than a Christian. Because I love that way. Maybe you love that way. Because it's completely natural to allow our love for others to be affected by their response to that love or their treatment to us. But Paul says here, we're obligated to be different. We're obligated to love them differently. Now, I don't mean to insult anyone's intelligence here because I believe it's clear from the passage today of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. But you might be thinking, how? How do we do it, Rick? How do I stop today from doing what we normally do, listening to the message, giving you a fist bump, Rick, and walking out the door? Here's how we do it. I want to talk specifically about Romans 13 here because in Romans 13, 8 through 14, Paul gives two overarching reasons we ought to love all peoples we love ourselves. First, it fulfills the law. That's what we're going to look at today, that part. And the second part, because the end of this present age is near, that's next week. Pastor Dwayne is going to be sharing that part. So according to Paul, we are to love all people as we love ourselves because it fulfills the law. Jesus talks about this. He reiterated this in the same passage we looked at earlier in Luke 10. 
His brother James does this in chapter 2, verse 8. He calls this the royal law, saying that if we love others as we love ourselves, we've got it. We're doing the Christian life well. I mean, we're all familiar with this, but how do we do it? If I may, what I want to do now is stop here in Romans and go back to the Old Testament because Paul here is quoting from Leviticus, Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, he tells us, he t- Moses tells the people, love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes we'll stop, we'll read that, and we'll leave it, but there's verses before it that show us how to love our neighbors as ourselves. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put these verses on the screen for you. Starting in verse, um, not cha- verse 9, he says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. But, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the traveler. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, in this passage, Moses lays it out what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. And I believe when Jesus and Paul refer to this phrase, and James later does, he understands the context here, the context of the verses before. Because in that passage, he gives us specifics of how we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, even though I believe these specifics were given to Israel at that time, I think it's best for us to take a look at them today and see how they apply to us as 21st century Christians. So, first... The first thing we see about how to love our neighbor as ourself is this, showing compassion to all, making opportunities and plan for the care of those who need help. The people of Israel were told to leave the edges of their fields unharvested to allow the poor and travelers to have something to eat, to make a plan to how to take care of them. Thus, God had the people to make plans to help those who needed it. Now, For you and me, in our age, this may mean something as simple as keeping some money on hand to give out when asked. And being good stewards, being discerning, but having the money. So you don't have to do this. You see? Having something. I've had some people say, I don't like to give out money, but here's what I do. I have a lot of freeze-dry, like not freeze-dry, like dried foods that don't go bad. I have those somewhere. So when people ask me, I can give them that. It has things like how to make like certain instant foods like oatmeal and things like that that they can have. Bottles of water. Those are great ideas. But you're making a plan to help those in need. It may mean carving out time in your weekly schedule to do some form of charitable work within the community. Maybe you're going to say, you know what, Mondays, I'm going to do this. 
Many of you have talked to me. On Tuesdays, I go down to the soup kitchen, or I help out with the Bethesda Center. Those are great things, but you're making time. You're planning to help. It could be that we create some ministry here at Salem where we look to help with the needs of those in our community. But whatever it is, it means we're being proactive, planning ahead of time how we can help those who need it most because that's how we love others as ourselves. Have you ever put yourself in that thought where you're, maybe somebody's asking for help and you think to yourself, how would I want them to handle it if it was me asking for help? You ever get arrogant when people ask you for help? They come to the door, they knock, and you kind of go, uh, like you have done something, like you've arrived and they just don't know your secret. What if you looked at it differently? What if you thought, that could be me? How would I want people to help me? Next, Israel was to love others as they love themselves by practicing complete honesty and integrity in all their dealings with others. God commands Israel to avoid any semblance of dishonesty, especially in matters of business, to refrain from lying or making false promises to others that you have no intention on keeping. When God declares that Israel was not to swear by his name falsely, he was prohibiting the swearing of any oath to anybody with no intention of keeping it. Thus, you're treating the name of God as unholy. He also says not to withhold from someone that which they have earned through their hard work. If they, even if it's praise, give it to them. To, to not look for shortcuts that would benefit us over someone else. To refuse to take advantage of someone through sketchy financial practices. Now, I hope I'm speaking to the choir here. I hope nobody's writing that down about sketchy business practices that go, mm, got to change everything at the company. It may be, though, for you, it has to do with that first part, refrain from keeping, uh, making promises you can't keep or you don't plan on keeping. Jesus talks about this when he says, don't swear by the city of, of, of Jerusalem. Don't swear by heaven. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else is of the evil one. If you're going to make a promise, keep it. If you're not going to keep it, if you can't keep it, don't make the promise. What do you mean? You, you mean somebody comes to ask me if I can help them? What do, you, what do I say? I can't. Wouldn't you rather honesty rather than somebody not showing up to help? Number three, Moses called the people to love others as they love themselves by refraining from showing prejudice toward or against anyone. This was a prohibition against making legal decisions unfairly, showing partiality despite the evidence presented, whether out of sympathy because we feel sorry for someone or out of a disdain because of some issue that has nothing to do with the facts of the case. Neither the rich or the poor were to be shown favoritism. Justice was to be administered regardless of anything equally. For us, this may mean refusing to allow any bias that we have to affect how we see and treat others. Based on our personal preference that we have divided us, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, positions of power, None of these should ever cloud how we see and treat someone else. Friends, God calls us to love all men, women, and children, regardless of anything, full stop. Or as my daughter likes to say, period. Keeping in mind the fact that they are valued and loved by God in whose image he created them. 
Fourth, the people were also to love others as they love themselves by refusing to take part in or allow the abuse of others through gossip and false accusations. Now, this one needs no explanation, but I'm going to. Because I think we have this messed up. I heard someone say one time, it's not gossip, it's true. Um, Pumpkin, that is the definition of gossip. Because gossip is something that's true that has nothing to do with you. Slander has something that is false that has nothing to do with you. The key is it has nothing to do with you. But if I could sum it up in a sentence, it would be this. We love others as ourselves by talking to others, never about them. Talking to others, never about them. So how do I do this? Somebody comes up with something juicy, and we love a good juicy story. Ooh, and we talk about it. Hey, listen, can I get you to help me pray about something? And then you share the story. What if you stopped it and said, hey, this really doesn't have anything to do with me. Have you talked to them first? Because they need to talk to them first. If I truly care about you, I'm going to talk to you first, right? Think about it. How would you feel? Wouldn't, rather than listening to or spreading something juicy around, what if we spoke to the person about it? What if we chose to believe the best in another person? And if something needs to be addressed, we address it in the way we would want to be addressed. Would you want someone sharing your story around that has nothing to do with them? No, then love others as you love yourself. And finally, the people were to love others as they love themselves by rejecting the temptation to allow offenses done against you to lead to malice and the desire for vengeance to grow within your heart. That's a lot of sentence. Again, this one needs no elaboration, and I believe it flows from the previous admonition about the way we speak about one another. We can't love others as we love ourselves if we harbor hatred in our hearts toward them, period. You can't. You can't do it. This does not mean we ignore the hurt done against us or sweep things under the rug. On the contrary, we address these issues when they occur. And we allow the offending party the chance to experience the consequences of these acts. However, this command is a prohibition of allowing the offenses to destroy our capacity to love others as we love ourselves. Because if we hold hatred and bitterness in our hearts, we can't love them as we love ourselves. I mean, think about it. If you were the offending party, wouldn't you want someone to come to you and share that hurt with you in a way that is loving and provides you a chance to repent? Would you want to see it on Facebook? Would you want to see it on social media as a hashtag before it got to you? No, you would want them to come to you. I mean, if you knew today that someone had been offended by you and it was causing them to develop malice in their heart towards you, wouldn't you want them to come to you so that you could seek their forgiveness and work to restore the relationship? Brothers and sisters, when we love in this way, when we love others in the same way we love ourselves as described in these five commands, we fulfill the law of God. Now, now don't mishear me. Paul here and I am not advocating some love without truth concept that ignores or tolerates and accepts things that go against God's word. I'm not saying that. Because love often 
confronts. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is confront something. Any parents in here want us to talk about that? When your child has done something that goes against your rules and you know it's going to be problematic for them in the future, do you not confront that issue? We have to. But this confrontation can and should be done in love because, brothers, this is the way of Jesus. When Jesus spoke to those who are far from God, he drew them to himself with, as John describes, grace and truth. He loved them but spoke truth to them. He confronted sin with compassion toward the sinner. He entered into the lives of others, men, women, and children. He entered their hearts, speaking God's truth in love. And this same Jesus who called his followers to love others as they love themselves calls us here at Salem Baptist Church this morning to do the same. This is not a commandment that's out of our time. He calls us to love by looking for ways that we can help those who need it most. He calls us to love through our words, refusing to talk about someone and instead talking to them. He calls us to love all men, women, and children because they bear the image of the God we serve. He calls us to love others even if that love is not reciprocated. He calls us to love even if the response to that love is hate. He calls us to love no matter the response. Friends, I get it. This kind of selfless love is difficult, but it's beautiful. Because this type of love declares to the world that something is different about you. By exhibiting selfless love and kindness toward all people, we're showcasing the love of Christ who gave his life for his enemies. In loving others as we love ourselves, we also communicate to them that they are cherished, And valued by Christ, who is willing to love them more than himself by suffering and dying in their place on the cross. Beloved, this is the gospel. And the gospel is centered around this message that is our responsibility now to share with the world. Togo, Clemens, West Salem. That's our responsibility. And brothers and sisters, we have no other challenge but to exemplify the commandment to love people as we love ourselves and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to all people. Will you pray with me? Father, your love cannot be fully comprehended. We don't have the time. There's not a time in the history of time to spend talking about how great your love is for us. And Father, we know that here. Those people in this room know that you love them. Maybe we've just lost sight of how to love others the same way. Father, forgive me. Forgive me for exhibiting a selfish love that loves those who deserve it in my mind. an exclusive love that loves the people that I get along with and not the people I don't. And Father, I pray that you would change my heart to love others as you love them and as I love myself.
And I pray the same for my friends here today. Salem cannot survive if we don't have that love. We cannot be the church you want us to be if we do not have that love. If we're focused on other things, we cannot be the church you want us to be. So God, break our hearts. Convict us. For those of us who are already doing this, encourage us to continue doing it. And may we who struggle, may you change our hearts so that we can love others as we love ourselves. And we pray this in the name of the one who loved us more than we could ever hope or imagine. In the name of Jesus, amen.